All right, this morning we're continuing with uh, Hebrews and looking today at chapter 6. I'll just read the first uh, three verses, but actually I'll try to uh, hit some key points uh, throughout the chapter. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And so he's actually interrupted himself. You remember last week we talked that he said he has some hard teachings. Uh, but in the meantime, he says, we got to move beyond. He kind of interrupted himself. We have to move beyond the elementary teaching or the rudimentary teaching. Uh, and he connects it that, uh, with faith in Christ. And so the hard teaching, I think, is the high priesthood of Christ. And the fact that Christ is mediating humanity, you know, this was the talk about his resurrection, his ascension, a bodily resurrection. He's mediating humanity, he's mediating creation at the right hand of God, and he's mediating divinity to humanity and creation. The milk here has to do with the elementary teachings, and we can line this up. He actually gives us... uh, two key things and then two things under that we we can line it up into these pairs and they all seem to fit well into a Jewish context first he mentions repentance from dead works and faith in God that seems those two things seem to belong together and he's going to talk about works from which the conscience needs to be cleansed They are works which issue in death because they are evil. They belong to the way of death and not the way of life. In the Didache, which was a a book of discipline, they would list these things as murders, adulteries, lusts, fornications, thefts, idolatries, magic arts, sorceries, robberies, false depositions, hypocrisies, a double heart. Fraud, arrogance, malice, obstinacy, covetousness, filthy language. The Didache was quite exhaustive, as you can see. Uh, That is, they went into great detail as to what the dead works might be, of what we need to cleanse our conscience from. You know, it goes on, haughtiness, boastfulness. And the point is, these things end in death. And this is certainly a New Testament teaching. uh, That there are certain attitudes, certain orientations. We need to cleanse ourselves of these. We need to be aware of them and get rid of them. Recognize them. Uh, Paul in Romans mentions a very similar thing. What benefit were then you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of these things is death. And of course what Paul's describing in Romans 6 is you've been baptized and so put off these dead things and live the resurrection life. And so to here the writer is saying faith in God, resurrection faith. We've said that 
what he's talking about throughout is this bodily resurrection faith is opposed then, how do you get rid of these dead things in your life? I think it is through a correct orientation that we have in faith as opposed to repentance, you know, uh, from these dead works. We can repent of these dead works through uh, our faith in Christ. And so how much more, he says in chapter 9, Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We've talked about this in Hebrews. You know, this is the reason Martin Luther thought the book of Hebrews didn't belong in the canon. Because Hebrews keeps saying we need to do stuff. We need to live this out. We need to... Get rid of the dead works and we need to live according to faith, resurrection faith. The various items that follow represent uh, more specific teachings that spell out what repentance and faith involve. He says initiation rites, baptism, laying on of hands. Let's not get stuck there. Uh, They're the correlate of repentance. Repentance from dead works and we've entered in. While belief about last things, you know, he mentions the resurrection and final judgment. Well, these are ideas that are very much conjoined. If you have faith in God, you believe in resurrection, you believe in a judgment. So starting from the foundations of the basic teaching of Christ... He's going to talk about our perfection. He compares it to growing a crop, a fruitful crop. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. In this instance, we're the, the, the soil, the crop, uh, that we are to provo- pro, you know, produce a, a, a fruitful harvest. He says we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. He says we're speaking in a dark, a harsh way here, but you're moving on, moving toward the better things in 6.9 that belong to salvation. And he's going to characterize this by a full hope, faith, and patience. These are thematic. That imitates the saints. Down in 6, 11 to 12. God is not unjust so as to forget your work. A lot of work in the book of Hebrews. You can understand why Luther would say, you know, would, would uh, question why Hebrews should be in the canon. I don't think we need to question it. It's just that in the Christian life, the Living out salvation is something that we do. That's all the writer is saying. But he connects this work with a very particular kind of work, the work of love, which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Have you ever thought of love as a work? You've got to work at it, don't you? Uh, it's something you've got to do. You can't just feel it. You can't just fall into it. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. 
And if you do this, he says, you won't be lazy bums. Well, that's not exactly what he says. He says sluggish. Uh, But you'll be imitators of those who through faith and patience, a patient, enduring faith, you will inherit the promises. So the author sets forth concrete examples. He's about to do this. Uh, of faith, hope, patience, diligence, love. You know, here are the key ideas of what constitutes faith. In chapter 11, you know, the people that demonstrate perfection, the fulfillment of the promise. Here in this chapter, if you look, he's talking about the promise, the sure promise that we have and how this is made perfect. It's made perfect, first of all, because of who God is. God is unchangeable. In verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. In other words, he's sworn by himself. God is unchangeable. We can trust him. He is sure and steadfast. And so likewise, our faith should be sure and steadfast. He says in verse 19, it is like an anchor securing us within the Holy of Holies. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? The the writer uses a lot of nautical language. Um, That is that we have a, a secure anchor in the very presence of God in the person of Christ. In the very dwelling place of God, Jesus exercises his priesthood in 7.16 through his indestructible life. Let Let me give you a word here that sums this up that we don't have in the Western church. But in the Eastern church, they call this theosis. Uh, they call it deification. And this may, this may sound a little bit strange to you, but I'm going to show you in Second Peter where they get the idea. Uh, it, the idea that you know, the glory to which man is called is that he should grow more godlike, even participating in the Trinity. This is the idea that we are co-participants in the Trinity. And so they'll call it deification. Now we don't want to get confused here and say, oh, we become gods. But listen to 2 Peter. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, listen, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We become partakers of the divine nature. I think that's what Peter is saying, but I think that's also what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That we become co-participants through Christ in the very presence of God. Two central themes that even using the same words demonstrate a strong similarity between Hebrews and 2 Peter. In Hebrews, the entire sermon addresses, he talks about we are partners. Don't think Texas partners here. 
No, no. Yeah, you're my partner. No, partners with him, walking beside him. We are participants. We are partakers in the heavenly calling. We are partners, you know, brothers, siblings of Christ in 3.14. In 6.4, his hearers are told not to turn away from being partners in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Holy Spirit guides us. Hebrews uses partners or metokos uh, uh, throughout this passage. One of, one of the two important terms. And the Orthodox Church draw upon this to, to explain the participation you know, the, in 2 Peter that we have in Christ. Uh, in 1.4, it's a very, 2 Peter 1.4, very similar theme. When he tells us that our calling is to be participants. In the divine nature. Jesus has said, I have, you know, you are called gods. We are called to certainly be participants in the divine person. There is a difference, though, between 2 Peter and in Hebrews. The word in 2 Peter is actually the word koinonia. I think we need to keep that before us. Our calling to be partakers or participants in a heavenly calling, I think, is in and through the koinonia, in and through the fellowship of the saints. Both Hebrews and 2 Peter talk about this as grounded in God's promise. In 2 Peter, he says, in 2 Peter 1.5, this promise requires that we make every effort this ain't an easy thing that we're doing. We've got to put forth some effort. We've got to use some willpower. We've got to have some diligence. We've got to be patient. The term is the same in Hebrews in 6.11. He admonishes his hearers to show the same diligence in accomplishing the end for their hope. That is, hope and faith are practices of diligence. 2 Peter and Hebrews call for effort or diligence in striving for hope and faith. Do you think about your faith as something you've got to practice? Or your hope as something that you have to be diligent about? Well, that's certainly the case in Peter and Hebrews. 2 Peter, faith is supported by moral excellence, by goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness mutual affection the writer here in this passage I just read he put love at the top of the list you know love agape is in both Hebrews uses all these terms he does not use the words goodness and self control but a very similar list with very similar purposes and in the, the you know conclusion in both Peter and Hebrews in chapter 13 let mutual love continue. How are we going to love one another? We're going to do it through this diligent faith and hope. And through this, the, the term endurance in Hebrews. Uh, that's the central admonition in chapter 12, which shows up here in chapter 6. Endurance or perseverance, it entails you know, this entire range of vocabulary. Those who fall or those who fail in it, take warning here, don't fall asleep on me. 
the writer of Hebrews is saying, I'm saying, uh, because you cannot be restored again to repentance. It's a fearful thing. Wake up. Norman Russell explains this uh, idea in the Orthodox. He says, Theosis is our restoration as persons to integrity and wholeness by participation in Christ through the Holy Spirit in a process which is initiated in this world through our life of ecclesial, you know, church communion and moral striving and finds ultimate fulfillment in our union with the Father, all within the broad context of the divine economy, this idea of participation. So it is to live as a faithful member of the church, attending the Lord's Supper. But what is the Lord's Supper? We, we think that this is representative of the communion of the saints, of the love of the saints for one another. We are to live in this community, and in living in community, we, we experience God in a way that surpasses our understanding, right? We know God, but can you grasp the fullness of knowing God? In other words, there is, and this is the Eastern Orthodox criticism of the Western Church, they, the criticism is, well, you imagine that you can reduce knowing God to a kind of intellectual knowing. And their point is, no, there is a mystical aspect to this, and I think we need to acknowledge that. God is bigger than we are, and our experience of God, our knowing God, isn't something that we can reduce down to our knowing him intellectually, but we know him like a person. I can't reduce any of you down. You know, if I tried to say, well, I know you, uh, it doesn't mean that I can reduce you to an intellectual formula. That describes our relationship. So too with God in our fellowship, in the agape, that our experience of God is partly a mystical experience. It surpasses all understanding, all description. Union with God is not knowledge of an object, but of an experience. And I'm not advocating pure experientialism here, but neither do we want to leave the experience of faith, hope, and love out of the, the mix. The danger is that we would reduce you know, this to a, a formula or an explanation. And so what you get, I think there is in theosis or even in deification in the Eastern Church, is this full-bodied experience. Uh, and there is a concentrated effort to rid the self of a simple rational conceptuality of God. Knowing God in the fullness of our experience, uh, inclusive, not exclusive of, but inclusive of the intellect, but not exclusively that. To know God in this full sense is perfection. So for Hebrews, the only cause and source for this perfection is Christ. We know Christ, we know God, we can be made perfect. That it's in Christ that we receive, you know, through what he suffered and offers. This is 5, 8 to 10. This is his eternal high priesthood. This is what he's doing for us. Listen to John Wesley. I think he's pretty good on this. 
He related Christian perfection to the rest promised in Hebrews. He says, He createth them anew in Christ Jesus. He cometh into them with his Son and blessed Spirit, and fixing his abode in their souls, bringeth them into the rest which remaineth for the people of God. There is this mutual indwelling. Following Hebrews, Wesley emphasized that this perfection is only possible because of Christ's intercession as high priest. I think that's a true reading of Hebrews. It's an intersection that an intercession that never comes to an end. Those to whom perfection come will always stand in need of Christ as mediator. I'm going to conclude here. But the writer of Hebrews in concluding gives us a very stark contrast an either or He says, either there is continued zeal or apostasy. And this relates to the contrast. You know, he's just given us in verses 7 and 8. Either you produce fruit or you're barren. And if you're barren, the idea is you're worth nothing. He says it comes close to being, you know, to judgment. I'm not going to dwell on this. I just want to say it. It's here in Hebrews, and I'll leave you with the problem of what he means by it. Uh, He seems to be saying that if apostasy apostasy is chosen, that you have no hope. No hope is left. There is no indication in Hebrews that apostates have any hope of redemption. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, this is verses 4 to 6, and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Hebrews will later in uh, chapter 12 talk about the example of Esau. rather, And it's one of the most striking verses in all of the New Testament. Esau, having sold his birthright, could not find repentance, even though he sought it with tears. Esau sought forgiveness, but none was offered. I think as as Christians, we we recognize that, uh, you know, that we're not suggesting here that there is no repentance possible. But what the writer is saying, there is a real possibility of losing your salvation, of becoming apostate. um, In which repentance for sins is not possible. I'm going to leave that there. I'll move on. Because he mitigates this a little bit, the harshness of this, in verse 9 to 12. And of course, throughout, he says, well, I'm expecting better things of you. We know that you're doing better. But he restates the need, don't be sluggish. Inherit the promises through faith and patience. And so the message is that you are called 
to go on to perfection through faith and patience, holding fast the confession until the end. Failure to do so will mean a failure to inherit the promise. Let's sing.